and so I'm, I'm very fortunate for the opportunity this morning. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to be looking at a very simple doctrine called adoption, and even though we're talking about adoption, kiddos, if you want to go to children's church, <laughs> see, wasn't that a good segue, Abby? It was great. So kiddos, if, if you want to go to children's church, come on down to the front. And while they are, you can turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. But we are going to be talking about adoption. Rob last week said I would be giving a presentation on adoption. I don't know that I'm presenting anything. I really just want us to look at uh, a passage of scripture that I think sometimes the simplest ideas really hold profound treasures and truths for us. And that's one this morning that we're going to look at here in Paul's opening to the church at Ephesus. And as we prepare this morning, one thing that I'm praying is that even though we're looking at a concept that I think in today's day and age we're not unfamiliar with, the idea of being adopted as a child of God to the Jewish mind did not make sense. In the Old Testament, there were only 14 references to God as father. And Rob's been going through the entire Old Testament with us. And when I read that in one of the commentaries, as I was studying it, it really struck me that the Israelites really did not perceive of God as a father as much as they did his holiness, his sovereignty, his authority over them. But when the New Testament comes and Christ comes, Jesus, dialoguing in front of his disciples, regularly uses the term father. In fact, in the Gospels, Jesus alone addresses God as father over 60 times. And it's no wonder, I think, that when Paul, a former Jew that is now a follower of Jesus, understands what has actually transacted and whose he is as a result of Christ, he, all of his letters, addresses God as a heavenly father looking over his children. And so we're going we're gonna to unpack this this morning. And as we do... I want you to think about this list of celebrities or names. Marilyn Monroe, Aaron Judge, Babe Ruth, Edgar Allan Poe, J.R.R. Tolkien, Steve Jobs, John Lennon, Jamie Foxx, Bill Clinton, Faith Hill, Colin Kaepernick, and yes, Orphan Annie. All were either orphaned at some point in their life or adopted by a relative not raised by their own biological mother and father. And uh, some of you know, my wife and I, we have three girls. We're in the process of adopting a fourth. And we started this process about a year ago, and it takes a long time to go, go through everything. We're doing it internationally. And we just recently, last month, were matched with a little girl. And uh, I've been studying this passage, going through an adoption myself. It's made the gospel life in a way that I've never seen it before. And my prayer this morning is that as we think through whether or not we think of ourselves as spiritually orphaned at some point, or whether we really understand what it means to be adopted by God, as we study this passage this morning, my prayer is that this very simple truth would really grip our hearts and would really deepen our faith in the Lord. And strengthen us. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to look at this passage in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 10. Paul, writing to this church in Ephesus, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You can be seated. J.I. Packer said, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. And that could not be more true than what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, I'm going through seminary right now, and so I'm accustomed to having to write a thesis, write a proposal of what I'm going to present. And so if there was a thesis or a proposition I'm hoping you gain from listening to my sermon this morning, positively worded, it would be this. If we as Christians would remind ourselves regularly of our salvation, which was made possible by God's adoption, then we would find perpetual joy that would anchor our emotions, fuel our worship, energize a desire for holy living, and move us to share the gospel as broadly as possible. Wording it a little differently and putting it in a negative sense, if we as Christians do not remind ourselves regularly of our salvation, which was made possible by God's adoption, then we will find perpetual dissatisfaction with God that will throw our emotions around like they were on waves, turn our worship stale and lifeless, cause us to seek to live for self rather than God, And lead us to think that the gospel is not something worth sharing and suffering for. You know, what would salvation mean for you if you viewed yourself as an orphan in need of adoption by God? And you don't need to stretch your imagination very far. Paul gives us this beautiful illustration in Ephesians 1. And on the whole, the book of Ephesians really kind of speaks of a twofold process. First, it talks about the regeneration we experience at salvation. We are a new creation. But then Paul does not forget that because of that, we receive blessings through adoption as the result of what God has done. And so Paul's argument to the church in Ephesus seems to be, if you knew whose you were and what it took to adopt you into the family of God and what you've been given through your adoption, you wouldn't even desire to go on living as you formerly did. And therefore, it brings us to our first point this morning. Adoption should remind us that we are God's choice in Christ. Adoption should remind us that we are God's choice in Christ. In verses 3 through 5, we're going to see three important themes. In verse 3, we see that the spiritual blessings that are ours because of God's choice. In verse 4, we see the choice of God to redeem or to save Christians through Christ. And in verse 5, we see that the choice of God, that we should be holy and blameless in Christ. So first, these spiritual blessings. Uh, it's interesting in how Paul orders his thoughts when you look at this passage. Why would Paul want to lead first 
with the blessings that are ours in Christ, right? Why not talk about the cross, what it took to give us those blessings? And I think before mentioning God's choice of salvation, Paul wants to remind us of these heavenly things that are ours in Christ. And as Christians, we're to live with an expectation that the glory that will be revealed to us is far greater than anything we can experience in this life. That's the theme of the Old Testament. These men and women putting their faith in the Lord, not always seeing things that God had promised fulfilled in this life, but knowing that there was greater glory to come. And so Paul's asking us to consider, in this church in Ephesus, can you really live your best life here on earth when compared to the treasure that God has awaiting those who are faithful to him to the end? But then you think about it, why would God keep, if these treasures are so wonderful for us to experience the nature of our salvation, why would he keep them in heaven? Why not give them to us now? Well, heaven, we know, is incorruptible, it's imperishable, it's untainted, and earth, simply put, is not, right? We don't have to look far to see how our sin has corrupted God's creation. And God's not one to pollute his gifts by allowing them to coexist with sin. So they're reserved for what's to come. And these gifts are so pure and so spectacular. Paul wants to remind us that we have to wait for God to bring about the fulfillment of his kingdom so that we can enjoy them in the way that he intended them to be experienced. But also, these gifts are reserved for specific people, God's people. And I think God is reminding us he does not share his glory with another And the spiritual blessings in heaven are reserved for us who belong to Christ and not for anyone else. God has chosen you out of the world to experience his salvation and in the time to come to see the full realization of the blessings in Christ that he's achieved. And as I've studied this passage, I've thought a lot about, you know, Paul leading with these spiritual blessings, I think, so that we can understand in a way the humility that Christ took on to make these blessings our own. Notice, he talks about these blessings are ours because of what Christ has done. And to experience the blessings of God required that the Son lay down his life for us. And so for us to receive spiritual blessings, God had chosen that it would first require his own Son to leave his position of glory, to endure the humility and shame of the cross, the curse of our sins, so that we could be made righteous before God and inherit these blessings ourselves. Which brings us to verse 4, Paul's reminder that God's choice is best illustrated using this concept of adoption, that we might better understand what really occurred in our salvation. As I mentioned earlier, adoption wasn't a Jewish custom. If you try to find the word in your Old Testament, you won't find the term adoption. It wasn't uncommon to the Jewish people. I mean, Moses, after all, was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. So we see circumstances where Men or women are adopted into families. But for a Jewish listener, when Paul brings this up, it would not be something that they were recognizing as written in God's Old Testament law. But the Ephesians, these people that were in the Roman Empire, they would understand what Paul meant by adoption because it was a a common Roman practice. It was something legal that they could go and do themselves. And it's no different than how we adopt today where a family legally assumes custody of a child, brings them into their family. And the legal means of it is that that child now gets all of the blessings, all of the inheritance that belong to the natural children now belong to the adopted child. 
And it's with this in mind, we can better understand the weight of what God has done for us in Christ. I mean, if you think about it, in verse 3, we're to see spiritual blessings that we have in Christ. And then in verse 4, it was God's choice to make us holy and blameless before him in love. And so it's both the reasons for and the benefits of our adoption. And adoption is specific to salvation. While God interacts with the world in a myriad of ways, we, we know the verses where it talks about God is patient. He gives his mercy even to the to sinners uh, that are not deserving of it. Adoption is reserved only for Christians and only the people of God. And it's only us that have experienced salvation in Christ that can call God a heavenly father. So God's adoption, it has legal authority so that he can call us his children. But his motivation wasn't duty. And that's why Paul inserts this at the end of verse four. It was in love he predestined us. Next week, uh, the plan is to study the book of Ruth. And one of the beautiful scenes in Ruth is when Boaz is going to redeem Ruth, bring her in as his wife. He goes to the city elders and he goes through the next of kin and just works his way through making sure, well, do you want Ruth as your wife? And that person says no. And he goes to the next, says, do you want Ruth? And that was all done out of duty, right? Boaz loved Ruth, but these men that were turning her down were doing it out of a a sense of duty. Like it was their obligation to take her in as a descendant that they needed to marry. And Boaz reflects the love, the redeeming love that God has for us in Christ. His choice isn't just some unnatural thing. It is all down done out of a motivation of love. And what's even more mind-boggling than that, I think, is that the father's adoption is accomplished through the son. So it's not just that God chose us to be adopted in his family. He chose to adopt us through his son. So think in your own circumstance, how many of you would ask a child of your own to be the one that makes the adoption possible so that you can bring someone else into your family. It's not something that I think many of us would think naturally of doing, but that indicates to us just the power of God's choice and the overwhelming nature of his love. And these words, we probably are getting hung up on the wrong words here. But when we look at he predestined us or he chose us for adoption to himself through Christ, that this was according to his will, Paul wants to remind us that from the very beginning, God the Father has been orchestrating the Trinity to work out to bring salvation to you and to me. It's a purposeful choice, but it's all done in love. Flip over to the left, just a couple pages in your Bible, Galatians 4, 4 through 5. Paul writing to this church at Galatia. He says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And then if you go just a little further to the left in your Bibles, Romans 5, 8, we know these verses well probably, but God shows his love for us and that we will still sinners, Christ died for us. And so Jesus, the one who had perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit, chose to humble himself to the will of the Father, become a man subject to the law just as we were, and willingly laid down his life to accomplish what the law could not require so that you could be brought into the family of God. Nobody does that in our day and age. Our love is self-centered and looks for what we can get out of it. 
And Christ laid down his life for us. And it's what makes the statement of Peter in Acts 4.12 even more critical for us, especially in the day and age we live in. Salvation's exclusive, Paul says in Acts 4.12. There's no name under heaven that's been given to men by which we must be saved except for Jesus. And it's exclusive because it reflects God's specific act to save you through deliberate adoption. There's no other name that would ever claim you as a broken sinner, lay down their life in exchange for your own apart from Christ. And there's nothing that you could have done to earn God's attention or love in order to merit or earn his adoption. It was his sonship or daughtership. It was his willingness to want to make you a child, and he chose to give it to you. John 15, 16 Jesus, addressing his disciples towards the end of his life, says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And Jesus' reminder to his disciples was that his choice of them would give them confidence, that it would reestablish their confidence in faith in the Lord and not their own abilities. So when Jesus ascended into heaven and left them on their own, their confidence isn't that Peter was the one that was forceful and they could rely on him to be the strength. It would all point back to Christ, the Christ had chosen them individually. And scripture, all of scripture has been given us this reminder of God's choice so that we might understand our salvation through faith, for the gift that it is, and then as a result, live confidently and righteously in response to that truth. Which brings us to Paul's third theme, that we were adopted by God so that we might be holy and blameless. For Christians, this is a non-starter. There should never be a movement among God's people that says because we're saved, we now have liberty to do what we want. Holiness here is moral purity. Blameless is the the thought that all of the guilt and the burden of our sin has been fully removed from us, permanently taken by Christ and cast away. And so when God adopted you as his child, he poured his spirit out in your life so that you can live as he lives and for his purposes. And he's not only given you the identity of being in his family, but he's empowered you to live to show that you belong in the family of God. I think we've forgotten that. God's adoption reminds us that we're his choice in Christ. And then secondly, God's adoption is meant to give us eternal spiritual rest and hope. So God did not save you because of what you are now or what you were in the past. God saved you because of what you will become by the working of his power in your life. We talk about there's this already not yet aspect of our adoption and salvation. We've already been adopted as God's children, so we belong in the family of God. But yet we have not been perfected into the final image of who Christ is. And so as Francis Schaeffer says, so how now shall we live? Well, first, we need to live as God's people that do not fear any final judgment of God. Because Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And therefore, our obedience to scripture isn't out of duty, trying to earn something that God has given us, but it's living in response to the salvation that God has given us and that will be fully realized at the return of Christ. And because Christ has done this work on our behalf, we are now indebted to live for God because of what he has done for us. God's poured out his Holy Spirit in our lives in order that you and I can confirm his choice of us through adoption so that it might comfort our minds, it would comfort our hearts, that we belong to him in order to live like we belong in the family of God. 
If you're still in Romans, Romans 8, 12 through 17, Paul writing here says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if we are children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. God's adoption is is beautiful and it's worth it because it reminds us there's nothing else left to complete. The completed work was done by Christ. And because Christ has finished that work, we have eternal spiritual rest. Which brings us to the second thing, that God's adoption reminds us how we should live now through the expectation for what he will do for us in the future. If you go a little bit lower than that in Romans 8, verse 23, Paul writes and he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit as we groan inwardly, as we wait eagerly for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this is that idea where we get that phrase, the already not yet. Your flesh is still dead. There are pieces of it that still crave sin, and it's crying out, as Paul writes here, groaning to put on perfection, conformity to Christ. But our hope is that in our final destination that's already been secured by God, that we will be redeemed. Our bodies will be resurrected, made perfect, just like Christ. And so that we will no longer crave sin, but we'll be God's perfect righteousness. And that's where we find our hope. And so the adoption of God requires really, I think, if you think about it, three responses for us as Christians in this life. First, we can live apathetically. We don't understand or we don't even seek to understand the riches of God both now and to come. And so we live lazily in this life. We think, so what? what? What difference does it make? A second category may be that we just reject what God has offered. We, we know what the word of God promises for those that will follow Christ, but yet we choose the world over him. We are the prodigal son. Knowing everything that has been given to us, we'd rather go our own way and many times we fall drastically short and come running back knowing what we've given up. But the final category is what I want to encourage us. This is where we should always be, receiving and believing what God has said. And we know what God offers, and we give everything to make it our own and to guard it and to keep it. Jesus taught multiple parables on that, the parable of the lost coin, uh, going out and, and finding a treasure in a field and going and spending all you have to purchase that field for your own. And those parables should remind us of the great cost that it is to be an adopted child of God in this life and to live like it. And the third response, we want to pursue that, but how do we actually do it? And Paul reminds us if we, if we neglect to think back on the blessings that are ours, then any motivation in living for Christ in this life really begins to slip into duty rather than being a response of the heart. And Paul later on in this letter will say, live a life worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Which brings us to this last point. God has adopted us so that we might reflect his glory and fill the earth. 
Christianity is not simply a becoming religion, right? It, we aren't following Christ in order to become religious. There's a lot of religion out there that will tell you in order to follow Christ, it has to look and act a certain way in terms of ceremony and function, but that is not what Christ offers. It's not about becoming philosophical and trying to just reason with the world in a logical way. It's not about becoming a winner. It's not becoming powerful or rich in this life. Christianity is all about becoming a new person and collectively for the church to become a new people in this world. And God's restoring us all back to the Garden of Eden relationship that God had with Adam and Eve. Kenneth Wiest uh, is a, a theologian. He, in his commentary on this passage in Ephesians, gave a, a sculptor illustration that really stood out to me. And he talked about this master sculptor that is renowned for being able to make just beautiful images. You can think of, you know, like a Michelangelo type artist. And the sculptor decides from here on out, all I'm going to make are statues that look exactly like my son. Because in his son, he saw perfection. And so the sculptor could easily go out and find stones to make into these statues that are easy to work with and beautiful on the outside. But instead, he intentionally picks the ugliest, roughest-looking stone to work with for two reasons. First, he knows it's going to magnify his ability as an artist to show what he can do with the ugly things of the earth and make them look perfectly in the image of his son. But secondly, it gives even greater glory to the son who all the people that know the sculptor realize that his son is perfection. And so for this artist to be able to take what was once ugly and conform it in the image of the son just magnifies the image of the son even more to show how great, how worthy he is. And I think that idea that Wiest has really helps us connect what God is doing here through adoption. God's work is about making your life totally new in Christ. And so what areas does God fashion us to look like Christ? Here's just six quick marks that we can, I think, identify. First is a transformed heart. A transformed mind, how we think. Transformed affections, what we desire in life. Transformed will, choosing Christ over things that were formerly what we thought worth it in this life. Transformed relationships. Again, this horizontal aspect of what God is doing in our midst. And transformed purpose. What are we living life for? If you think about it, you've been adopted by God so that you can live as his children and not as children of the devil. If you skip down, Ephesians 2, after all of this thought of what Christ has done for us and what God's adoption has has achieved for us, Paul takes us back to what we used to be. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, read along with me. Paul addressing, again, these are Christians that he's speaking to. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. 
Paul uses these phrase, sons of disobedience. In connection with adoption as us being children of God, we were formerly not his children. Our birthright was sin and death. And maybe if you think about it, Satan's best efforts were to make us slaves to sin, thinking that if he could somehow dirty our lives up enough, God would not seek those children that he created in his image. But verses 4 through 10 give us the complete picture. But God, being rich in mercy, again, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. God has made us alive together with Christ. As Paul would say in another passage, you were bought with a price. Therefore, what? Glorify God in your body. But secondly, and equally important as living as God's holy people because of adoptions, that we now take on God's family purpose. The church exists to grow the family of God through gospel proclamation. The love of Christ has been poured out into our hearts in order to soften us, to want to pursue the priorities of God, And it motivates us in a way that we want to share his love broadly with others. Isaiah captured this thought in Isaiah 43, verse 4. Look at this verse with me. Speaking of the nation of Israel, but in a messianic way, it connects with Christ and what he's done for us. Isaiah wrote, because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. You can keep that. That verse up there, Isaiah 43, 4. The heart of the gospel is adoption. And it came at the cost of the life of Christ. And we've inherited the life of Christ, which means that we've inherited this same idea that we, as 1 John three sixteen reminds us, lay down our lives for one another. All of life now is, is this theme verse. We are to give our lives that God may use it to bring others into the kingdom of God. And we see the advancement of the gospel. And thirdly, our adoption is not just vertical, right? It's not just me and God individually. It's us corporately. It's this horizontal aspect. Bringing many sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. And then now we learn together what it means to live as the family of God. Uh, Next week, we're going to have a members meeting. And... As members of one another, what's far more important to the Lord than just if we balanced our checkbook is how do we care for the weakest in our body, for those that are suffering, going through things in life that they need the encouragement. And if we as a body think that gathering for a members meeting is to transact business as an institution or organization, I'd question whether or not we've really been adopted into the family of God and understand what he's done for us. Because if we take love out of that transition between verses 4 through 5, the phrasing's still powerful, but it loses the concept in terms of the one another aspect that we should have. The fact is, like, the church of Ephesus, when you flip forward in Revelation 2, things do not look good for this church. If you flip over to Revelation 2, you can see it. They are the first church called out by Christ. And... What Jesus says to them is, listen, you're doing everything right, Ephesians. You're, you're standing up for sound doctrine. 
you're pushing back against people that would, would corrupt the gospel, but you've lost one vital thing. Anybody remember what Jesus calls them out for? You've lost your first love. I mean, this church that Paul's writing this to, reminding them of all these spiritual blessings, the reality is they, they lost touch with the fact that the motivation was the love of God. And if we're not careful, we can easily miss the same. Understanding that adoption, God's choice of us, was fully achieved in love so that we might be able to show that to one another. So what will you do with the salvation you've been given? With all the blessings that are yours in Christ, achieved for you by what Christ has done, given in love, how will you live now? I was talking with somebody from my small group earlier this week, and as we were talking about this idea and just where I was trying to really wrap my mind around this huge concept, they asked me, they said, why is it that I keep forgetting this truth? And I think part of the reason we've lost this truth is we've lost the wonder of the gospel. We've fallen in love with lesser things in life. We've fallen in love with maybe it's doing church and having the appearance that we're alive, but spiritually we're dead. For others of us, we've filled our time with lesser things in terms of job or status uh, it could be relationships. We think that somehow if I just had this person in my life, everything would be complete and I'd be made whole. We think if we're popular, that somehow that will make my life count in God's eyes. But if we begin to lose focus on the nature of our salvation and whose it was to give us salvation, then we'll quickly go off base in a multitude of areas. Some of you may remember this song, Oh, How He Loves You and Me. Anybody remember that song? Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? And then the second verse, Jesus to Calvary did go. His love and mercy to show All he did there Brought hope from despair Oh, how he loves you Oh, how he loves me Oh, how he loves you and me We can go through life Getting very busy doing good Christian things and worry about a lot of things that have very little bearing on eternity. But spend your life thinking about Christ. Just those, that simple chorus, Jesus to Calvary did go. Why? His love for sinners to show. And what he did there brought hope from despair. If God has given his life, what more could he give? And yet many times I think our prayers Focus on, God, I need you to give me one more thing before I trust you, right? We become Gideon in the Old Testament. If you'll do this, I'll go the next step. And God is looking and saying, if you just knew what I've given you and what is yours to take hold of, follow me. I'm not going to cheat you out of anything in this life or the life to come. Look at this passage, Psalm 126. 
This is from the New Living Translation. Psalmist writes and says, What can I offer the Lord for all that he has done for me? I'll lift up the cup of salvation and praise the Lord's name for saving me. I'll keep my promises to the Lord in the presence of all his people. It's a mutual thing, right? The psalmist even calls it out. What will I give to the Lord individually? I will lift up the cup of salvation. I will praise the Lord's name for saving me. I'll keep his promises and doing it what? In the presence of God's people. The Lord is desiring that we as a church would really understand the nature of our salvation and what he offers. So if you're here this morning, and as I threw out the terms, these treasures belong to Christians. These are things that Christ has given us that are his through faith. And you're here and you have not made a decision to follow Christ. Your response is to wrestle with what the truth of God's word says. That you are a sinner before a holy God. And yet in love, he gave his own son to die for your sins. And the, really the question for you, if you're here this morning, that's you, is will you receive the Lord's salvation and walk in the fullness of his life? The Lord stands ready to adopt you into his family. And that may not be something that you've ever heard preached about the gospel, but the gospel does not exist to just make your life better now. It exists to bring you into the family of God and make you a child of God. And all you need to do is put your faith in what Christ has done for you. And that's our question. If you are here today and that's you, I would encourage you when we sing this song of response to come to the front. But you may be here this morning and you know you're a follower of Christ, but your love has grown cold. Maybe you're like that church in Ephesus in Revelation 2. You've lost your first love. There is no greater opportunity than in response with what God's word has said today to renew your love for the Lord because of his unfailing love for you. No matter how cold you have been towards the Lord or distant from him, he has never stood more ready and more willing to receive you back. We can do all the right things in life. On the, on the outside, look like a clean cup ready for service to the Lord, but inside our lives can be a wreck. And it's that that is so upsetting to the Lord that he threatened the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2. Because you've lost your first love, even though you're doing all these things right, I may come and remove your lampstand from you. And for us as a church, may we be careful to guard the witness that's been entrusted to us in response to the salvation that's been given. And if you're here today and you are walking confidently and humbly with the Lord, praise God. Continue to guard what you've been entrusted with and fill the earth with God's glory. But the warning for us is that we don't become puffed up in who we are in Christ, but that we humbly serve one another and we seek God's glory above our own. And so we're going to stand together. Alan's going to come and lead us into a time of response. And as we do, I'm going to invite you, if, if any of what we have shared this morning, you have questions, or there's something specific that the Lord is calling you to do, now is the time to respond to the Lord and not delay. And, I, and my prayer is that today, as you go throughout your day and throughout the week, you would find ways, whether it's in your community group or with others that you spend your time with, reflecting on some of those questions that are in your worship bulletin. And really asking, what is...
the power, the impact of God adopting me into his family. And, and Lord, what is it that you would have me do differently as a response to what your salvation has achieved for me? Let me pray for us and we will sing this song together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you have accomplished in Christ for us. God, we thank you that all of the spiritual blessings are ours because of Christ and not anything we've done on our own. Father, I pray that this simple truth would really penetrate our hearts and God, that it would stir in us a genuine desire to live life as a response to your love. Thank you for this time, Lord. I thank you for these people. May you build your church to be something magnificent that reflects the nature and character of what it means to be called a child of God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.